This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 18th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. For most people, anarchism would simply be a world without rules, chaotic and dangerous. And the people who advocate it as themselves chaotic and dangerous. Author Michael Malice has assembled The Anarchist Handbook, a collection of essays from names you probably know and names you don't, presenting a range of opinions about how the world works and how it ought to work. We spoke earlier this month. It seems so long ago, Michael, when I hosted you at the Cato Institute and introduced you as the dear author of Dear Reader, the unauthorized biography of Kim Jong-il. That is one point on a spectrum of the kinds of government that we can have, which is dynastic family communism slash dictatorship. (laughs) And in this new book, you talk about anarchism. And within anarchism, there exists a spectrum. And I think people who are critical of anarchists almost universally are just talking about one specific flavor of anarchist, if I understand uh, some of the writings that you cite here. Well, it's it's not even one flavor. It's one imaginary uh, uh, kind of straw man. Uh, there, you know, I wrote the introductory essay in the Anarchist Handbook, and I explain how what are frequently described as criticisms of anarchism are invariably descriptions of the status quo. So it's like anarchism is bad because in an anarchist system, you're going to have these warlords who wage war on people. And it's like, what do you, what do you think we have now? It's, it's so there's many criticism of anarchism. Some are more coherent than others, but the caricature, um, which is, I don't know how people get this idea, but they seem to really be insistent on sticking to it. That was one of the reasons I wrote this book. So that, you know, instead when people ask me, how would anarchism resolve this? How would anarchism resolve that? And address these various issues. I said, look, the same way, if you, you can say Republican and refer to Jeb Bush and Donald Trump, but to claim that they would have, you know, similar or the same approaches or conclusions for any given issue is simply inaccurate. So the same thing, anarchism being a negation of recognizing hierarchy or authority, depending on what school of anarchism, there are many, many possible responses to common criticisms. Now, you have selected essays from various uh, historical anarchists, including yourself, I might add, and uh, true to Michael Malice's form, you give yourself the last word here. Um, well, it's chronological. It's that's one way of looking at it, certainly. Yeah, yeah. And also in terms of looks. So the ugly ones are at the beginning, like Josiah Warren. <laughs> and then you get to hunks like me and Murray Rothbard at the end. Well, wonderful. And I th- there are a lot of names here that uh, libertarians broadly would recognize. Herbert Spencer, Lysander Spooner, Benjamin Tucker, Tolstoy, uh, Emma Goldman even, David Friedman, Murray Rothbard, John Hasness. But for the people who call themselves anarchists who are more libertarian adjacent, who are the people that you quote extensively from in in this book that they should read that they haven't, that they would find most challenging? Uh, That's a very good question. I would say uh, Bakunin, who was an early communist anarchist. I was very pleased to include his essay from 1867 because there's this idea among libertarian anarchists or anarcho-capitalists, whichever you would prefer, that if push comes to shove, these 
original communist anarchists, a socialist anarchist would be Stalinists or statists if uh, they had their druthers, that they may speak one thing, but once they got into the halls of power, uh, they would act completely differently. We know that this is in many cases untrue. Uh, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, who were basically partners in crime throughout their lives, literal crime uh, in many cases, were deported from the United States under the auspices of Woodrow Wilson uh, via J. Edgar Hoover, who was just getting his uh, cutting his teeth on using the state as an implement of oppression. They got sent to Russia. And this is under Lenin. And Emma Goldman went to Lenin's, Lenin's office and denounced him to his face. And the two of them later fled the Soviet Union and both wrote books saying how horrible uh, the Soviet Union is, how this is exactly what we're opposed to. And so that kind of mindset is just kind of edifying to people. Goldman also, there was an essay, in, which I didn't include in this, in her book, Anarchism and Other Essays, about uh, public education. And th- you would think, okay, this is the hard question when it comes to lefties. Sure, there'll be anarchists everywhere else, but when it comes to education, we have. To sh- and she, in the exact same criticism that someone out of Cato would say, would be like, "This is exactly what we're against. This is making people ready to be corporate drones. Uh, we despise it." But why I specifically say Bakunin? He was an early rival of Marx's uh, for basically being the Pope of communism in the mid 1800s. And his essay from 1867 correctly predicts and denounces what would become the Soviet Union 50 years later. And he goes, look, what you're arguing for, he doesn't have the word, of course, at his disposal, is totalitarianism. This is going to be worse than the czar. You're turning an entire population of serfs into serfs, into slaves. Uh in the name of the people in this, you know, dictatorship, the proletariat, we're, this is completely horrible. So when you read his essay, it's it's just amazing. A how contemporary it sounds and how uh, um, prophetic it sounds, but B, the claim, again, that many libertarian anarchists, that these lefties, when push comes to shove, would be you know communists. In many cases, that's true, but here's an example of the OG uh, basically saying exactly what you'd want him to say. Yeah, so I, I think there are, you know, when, when you look at, first of all, do you believe that anarchism as a, as a, as a philosophy, as a, an idea of government or lack thereof, you see that as a spectrum. Sure. It's, yeah, I wouldn't use that term, but yes. Okay. So with respect to the range of opinion among uh, anarchists, where does Michael Malice fall in general and, and why? Uh, I'm an anarchist without adjectives. Uh, I think there's something to be gained from every single person in this book and every different school of anarchist thought. Um, even if like Lewis Ling, who's the cover model was a terrorist. I mean, he was for violence and, and dynamite. Uh, but there's something to be learned from him because what I include is after he was sentenced to death, uh, for conspiring to commit murder was something he was not involved in, in the slightest by the state of Illinois in the late 1800s. He stood up in that courtroom and denounced the judge and the police to their face in the most, you know, vituperative terms. So that kind of, you know, um, virulence and that, you know, staying defiant in the face of certain death, that is certainly something that someone can admire from all political stripes, even though we would find uh, his literal uh, practical views to be just horrifying. You make note in your uh, brief essay here, a party platform is a minor matter. War solely government's purview is far more serious. Yet in both cases, a vote is a formality 
an ex post facto justification for an organization to do whatever it intended to do anyway. Yeah, I think uh, you and I are probably old enough to remember this. Some young people might not. But when President Bush got elected in 2000, this is he's inaugurated in January 9-11 in September. For those eight months, there was a lot of discussion in the media at the time. Are we going to invade Iraq? So it was just regarded as somehow of a something to consider that it's appropriate or acceptable for a nation to simply invade another nation on the other side of the world to take out someone who was indisputably a horrific, uh, uh, terrible, genocidal dictator. So what happens, obviously, 9-11 happens and they've got their pretext. And the issue became, okay, we're going to you know, try to get it passed this way. They went to the UN. The UN said no, and they went there anyway. So inevitably, Obamacare is another example of when the population was screaming at the top of their lungs, we don't want this. And they're like, yeah, well, we're going to do it anyway. So uh, democracy and voting often legitimizes these views, but they're going to do what they need to do regardless of whether these uh, positions are popular with the people. And the popularity of the people only serves to keep them in office, but it, that's all, also secondary to maintaining the hold on power. I think my introduction to anarchism was through Robert Anton Wilson, oh, who, yeah. uh, who made significant reference in his various books and quoting various anarchists in his books with their different views of uh, property. And he quoted, I think, Proudhon and uh, Bakunin and others just giving their very short quotes about uh, property. Property is theft. Property is impossible uh, and items like that. So when you survey anarchists uh, in, in their writings about property, what stands out to you? What stands out is how th this would drive the, the anarcho-communist crazy, but I'll, I'll, I'll go there anyway. What stands out, I think, is they have a very dated view of economics and how dynamic eco economies work. So they were living at a time when you had these mass immigration, people coming to Europe, uh, the conditions in the Lower East Side of Manhattan and other such places with tenements, we can all regard it retroactively as horrifying. There's a tenement museum in New York, which you could go visit to see how people live. There was a book by Jacob Reese called The Other Half Lives. So when they're agitating for the government to provide basic sanitation, you know, at the, and at the time they were being denounced as socialists, both sides were true. And this is something that we can easily kind of wrap our heads around. Now, they weren't really agitating the anarchists specifically for the government to provide this, but their argument was, look, it's unacceptable in a country that has so much that children can't even, you know, use the bathroom or have to be 17 in a room. So I think their view of economics uh, at the time makes a lot more sense than contemporary people in the liberal tradition give them credit for because their concerns were not invalid, even if their analysis might be wrong. And, and I think there's a lot to be said historically for leftism uh, by its nature in terms of worrying about the person who's on the margin, the guy who's in the gutter, uh, and, and, and the kid who's just basically been forgotten. And I think that their um, uh, concern with the working man is something that the contemporary Democratic Party, for example, has almost completely forgotten about, and is something that I think is very American. 
you know, the like it's going back even to the Revolutionary War when you had Washington's army marching around in newspapers because they didn't have shoes. And then Congress didn't even have the money to appropriate to pay them their due for liberating us from the British. So I think that that is a very easy case to make for their priorities being something that is quite admirable. And and to the extent that the concern is there for uh, people on the margins of society, uh, for at least contemporary Democrats in the U.S., there is no means but the state. Correct. And the only person who is regarded as marginal is someone whose agenda could be a further use to furthering the state at the given moment. So we look at a great example of this is Britain, where the, the second party, the left center left party is the Labour Party. And as soon as many of these Labour people started voting for the Tories in the same way that Reagan had Reagan Democrats, now they're being regarded as racist, white supremacist and, you know, being ostracized. And it's like, how are you going to call yourself Labour if you're not first and foremost, the party of the working man. It's a, a contradiction on its face. And this shows how correctly or incorrectly uh, contemporary leftism has strayed from its historic uh, you know, socialist roots. So why this book? I can see the appeal in one sense, and it's a very base sort of laziness that I would see in trying to put a book like this together myself in that a lot of pages are essays by other people. Sure. Uh, but it's, it's a bit of, uh, you know, a curated book in, in involving a lot of different views of, uh, anarchy, but, but why is that important right now? I've been doing a lot of media appearances of late Rogan, Lex Friedman, uh, other such podcasts, and many people, as I discussed in my introductory essay, we've been taught for decades that anarchism is not really something that we should waste our time discussing, that this is kind of a utopian, you know, ch or childish philosophy that it makes no sense. You, there's never been anarchism. There never can be. So this is something that stoners talk about in college. Like, hey, man, what if there's like no government? And it's like, okay, let's be grownups and let's talk about the realms of the possibility and what is not possible. But as I started, you know, discussing this ideology on various um, media platforms, people kept bugging me about, well, how, how would you, they started taking it seriously. How would you resolve the police? What would you look like without prisons? How are we going to get invaded by China tomorrow? And it got to be a lot. And there was a book written in the 60s, which is very hard to find now, called Patterns of Anarchy, uh, which had a collection of historical essays from uh, you know various schools of thought, but all left of center. They didn't really have, there's Benjamin Tucker in there, but they didn't have the contemporary stuff. So a follower of mine, Marlush, I was doing a live stream and she goes, why don't you just do the audio book of this? and point people there. So it's even more lazy than you think. So it's not just a, a collection of historical curated essays, but it's also so I could stop having to be bugged with these questions and just say, go read the book. And I was shocked and delighted to what extent the reception has happened. It was the top nonfiction book on all of Amazon uh, for a full day. Uh, so the only people beating me were a novel and Dr. Seuss. I was third on all of Amazon, first in nonfiction, beating such minor nobodies as Oprah Winfrey or Barack Obama. You may not have heard of them. And that shows that I think people are very hungry. And this is a point Cato makes very frequently and correctly, that this kind of binary Republican Democrat worldview does not at all port to reality, that people do not feel a strong sense of bonding with either of the major political parties. Something's not adding up. And if these are my two, you know, we always talk about the lesser of two evils, but if these are my two choices, neither of these, uh, they seem increasingly obviously cynical and venal. 
And let's, let's, it's also just interesting, I think, in a podcast era, in a social media era, where people are interested in exploring radical ideas just in terms of thought experiments. Okay. And what have people thought before? Let's hash this out because this cookie cutter CNN, you know, Fox News uh, binary we, we're given does not seem to be uh, at all something that comports to reality. Michael Malice is author of The Anarchist Handbook. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.